Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hi, Nelson. Hi, Hi Brett. Jeff. Hey, Brett. How are you? I'm well. And yourself? Good. My very question nervous. today is, I'm yeah, why nervous. did you agree to do a podcast with three guests? Oh, we have three guests today, and yeah. it's going to be an interesting experiment. I'm excited about it. I am too. It's either going to be a resounding failure or a phenomenal success. Really no in-between there. One of those. Yeah. Our guests today are the founding members of the Miami litigation boutique Diamond, Kaplan, and Rothstein PA. The firm was founded in 2003, and they just celebrated their 20-year anniversary. They're well known for their investment in consumer fraud practice, but they handle all types of commercial litigation, including securities fraud, white-collar criminal defense, and cybersecurity and data privacy litigation. Scott Diamond has an impressive track record. I'm taking them in name order. Diamond, Kaplan, and Rothstein, just so there's no bickering among them about who went first. Increasing levels of attractiveness, that's how we like to think of it. <laughs> Acceptable. Scott Diamond has an impressive track record representing companies and individuals in intricate commercial and securities matters. His role as lead in local counsel and state and federal courts in Florida has earned him national acclaim for his intelligence, strategic acumen, and aggressive advocacy. Uh, Put a pin in that word intelligence. Yeah, he He wrote that one. Written that himself. Jeffrey Kaplan is an AV-rated lawyer specializing in plaintiff-side securities arbitration, consumer fraud, and class action litigation with a passion for protecting investors and financial advisors. Jeff has experience in recovering millions of dollars on behalf of his clients. And last but not least, David Rothstein has served as the ringleader, the firm's president and managing shareholder since inception. He has a wide-ranging civil litigation practice, and he captains a team that handles matters in state court, federal court, and in arbitration proceedings. And I should mention that each of them is also a proud husband, father, and a supporter of the South Florida community and many of the charitable organizations here. So we're very happy to have you guys. Welcome. Well, thank you for having us. Nice this experiment is three alphas on a single microphone. So if, if you hear rumbling, if you're hearing, <laughs> yeah, if you have hearing problems. That's why I'll jump in yeah, and ask the it. first. Thank you guys for being here and for doing this. Pleasure. We appreciate it. You guys have busy, busy schedules. And so to take time out, we appreciate it very much. And I think our listener will appreciate it too at the end. Jeff mentioned three alphas and that's true, but I think in a good way, how is it that you all and you guys can decide who answers first? <laughs> How have you guys been so successful and had such a successful partnership for 20 years? Because we've been at it for almost 15. It's really hard. Like a marriage, it's hard and it's a lot of work. And so how have you guys been able to do that so successfully for 20 years? Let's see if they can get past deciding who answers. I'll I'll, I'll give the glib response, which is uh, no tie votes. There's a wisdom to having three folks voting on everything. Uh That was my answer. Number of voters. And that's the only thing we probably will ever agree on. (laughs) No, but that's true. There's no tiebreaker. So in that regard, it's perfectly imperfect. And Because we fight all the time amongst ourselves. But like, if you guys disagree on something passionately, how do you figure it out? Brett gets two votes. That's that's right. You didn't know that? I get two votes. No, but I appreciate that. But our concern or a concern of people who have an odd number of partners versus an even number of partners is, well, if the odd, do two people get together and say, all right, listen, how does that work? I mean, is there ever any issue like that? Individual issues? Yeah. Maybe. But here's the thing. The alliances change from issue to issue. So as long as one guy's not getting voted down all the time consistently, 
which has never really been the case because I think we have fundamentally shared values. We feel very, very differently on different subjects, but it's almost always someone's the odd man out. And as long as we're respectful and mindful of dissenting opinions and the process is not compromised, my phrase is it's perfectly imperfect. And for 20 years, we've limped and sprinted at various points in times, but it's always worked out. By the way, that was David. Just so the listeners can get their bearings, the first answer was Scott and then David. And I will join in Scott again. The reality is we almost always govern by consensus. Like there is rarely an actual vote. Because the goal is for us all to massage a position down to the point Says where the we can all... loses a lot of votes. A lot of votes. <laughs> and lose most of the votes. And there's something nice about being the, sole, the center and the firm. We all have a common goal, routinely, with respect to both macro and micro issues. Almost always with a different way to reach that goal. But since we have really respectful disagreement, and we all know that our heads and hearts are in the right place... Our respectful disagreement allows us to recognize that, okay, not the way I would do it, but if the end game is the same as mine, I can go with the decision. You asked a question, David, about how we do it with just two of us, and it's the same issue, right? It's we both trust each other. We trust that what we're saying, whether it's in agreement or otherwise, is in the best interests of the firm and each other, and that we don't have any issue with, like, if he disagrees with me, I don't think he's bringing something to the table. Like, there's a reason why he's disagreeing that, concerns me. No, I think he just comes at it from a different perspective, which is what you all are saying, right? It's not a disagreement. It's just a conversation and a debate over various topics. And we end up coming to a consensus, whether it's Jeff, I end up, you know, okay, you know what, Jeff, you're right. Or Jeff says that to me, which is, you know, of course, all the time. (laughs) Or we come to a different view based on the debate and a different outcome. I will tell you, when we agree on something, we feel pretty good that it's right. All three of us are in the same place on an issue. There's a lot of confidence there. And I will tell you, to build on what David said, no structure is going to work if two things aren't true. One is that you have the same level of character of the folks involved. And the reality is that's the fundamental underpinning of any good partnership. And there's no way to do this for 20 years with any level of success unless you all have good character. And then the second thing is we're all in the grand scheme of things approximately the same place. We're roughly the same age. We have roughly the same types of practices. We have families of about the same age and kids of about the same age. There's no retiring guy and an up-and-coming guy. It is very stable for that reason. And on top of that, everyone's bringing in about the same amount to the table. That doesn't mean every year every guy is going to generate the exact same number of dollars. But on balance, you know, any year could be your year. And on balance, there's a harmony there of input. And if that's true and you've got guys of good character and everyone's basically bringing the same thing to the table at the same time, that is much more stable than the three-vote system. I'm agreeing with everything that everyone said, and I think it's very similar, at least for me and Brett, it's similar to almost like our marital relationships. You are coming at it from a position of trust. I trust this person that she also has, shout out to Jale, she also has the best interest of us as a couple and our children or whatever we're talking about in mind. And then from there, where you disagree, it's pick your battles. Like if Brett cares about this issue more than I do, we're going to go his way. And I think it's the same way. If I really feel strongly about something, I think Brett will relinquish. I'm actually almost the opposite of you, Scott. I get a little nervous when we're on the same page on everything. I think, all right, well, are we missing something? Because sometimes, you know, groupthink can take over and you miss blind spots. And so some wisdom says, analyze this problem from how to fail. Like, what should we do if we wanted to fail at this thing and then look at it the other way? Being on the same page can mean different things. Are you on the same page with the ultimate goal or the means to get to that goal? We're often on the identical page with respect to the goal we're trying to reach. Right. But 
many times in disagreement with how to get there. And that's where it comes in play, the notion of compromise, like you said, with respect to marriage as well. The willingness and ability to compromise, compromise your own position and listen. Frankly, I think you learn a hell of a lot more by listening than by talking. Yeah, yeah. And I've been educated and and my eyes have been open to just viewing the same situation very differently by listening to Scott or David. I don't always agree, but it allows me to see things from a different perspective sometimes and allows me to compromise in a way since I ultimately know the goal we're all trying to collectively achieve is the same. So how did it look, if we can... Rewind a bit. How did this partnership come to fruition in the first place in 2003? We all got pissed off with our old boss at the same time. No, no, Did you all work together in the same firm? No, we did. So our experience is rare, if not unique. We all worked. Aren't those the same thing? No. (laughs) No, they're not. The normal story is people are working for the man, and they're generating a lot of business, and they feel they're not being compensated for it. I'd say that's most origin stories for lawyers. Well, we were at a law firm that was extremely successful and extremely profitable to the point that we were not capable of generating work that was worthy of that firm. Mm-hmm. And they were generous to us as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were very, very well compensated and working on incredible stuff. But, you know, we're at a point in our careers then in, you know, various stages, but we were all early, mid-30s. Your phone starts to ring a little bit and, you know, people would say, here's a case. So they'll pay X hourly rate or there's this much at issue for a contingency case. And we would take it to our bosses at the time and they'd be like, why are we going to waste our time on that? Refer it out. It's too small. It just wasn't worthy of their inventory. So we were literally getting at the point where we were pretty long in the tooth to be totally beholden to someone else Mm -hmm. and have no book of business of our own. When your referral sources end up going away. The first three to five cases they send to you, they right. reject, they stop coming to you. Right. So we were faced with the prospect of, are we going to be 40, 45 years old, never having developed any business of our own? And our network of referral sources disappeared on us because we never took the referrals. And moreover, we were at a shop where equity was just between two people. So it wasn't like an institution where we knew we had a home. Right. That firm could have evaporated. And in fact, did evaporate. So we were really looking at the prospect where, you know, if we stayed here, we were very well compensated working on great stuff, but we might be 40-year-old associates at some point, even though we had titles of partner. But really, we might have to dust off our resumes at age 40 with no book of business and have to go get a job. My view of this was that people would say, oh, my God, you left this established firm and you were making money. And how can you take that level of risk? And I always thought that was a misperception of the nature of the risk. <laughs> the risk is what happens, as David says, when you wake up 10 years later yep. with no book right. and your boss yeah. decides to do something else. There's the perceived comfort in getting that paycheck at an established firm versus taking the leap yeah. and trusting yourself. But and it's not for everyone. To it is not. Down, we had great jobs. Sure. It wasn't a career. career exactly. Right. So right. we still have great relationships with the owners of that firm we left. Right. The great guys, and we still associate with them and we're in good relations. So I'm going to ask about that firm and answer as to the extent you're comfortable, which is what was it that led you to think, well, there's only going to be two equity partners was there nothing in place to encourage you to go out and get business? Obviously, you weren't able to bring in matters, but go out and network and business develop. Was there no path to management? I mean, what weren't you seeing? And then what have you done with your firm to change that environment? Well, I'll share with you my personal experiences. And I was the last to join that firm. Okay. And so... Along the three of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three of us, mm-hmm. yeah. So and this is David speaking about At the yes. time, I was like a fifth-year attorney. Mm-hmm. I come from a very large full-service firm. 
And through happenstance, I had a small but growing book of like what was basically insurance defense work, mm -hmm. premises liability. And it was a point in your career where, you know, laterals were in desire. So my phone was ringing all the time and offers were coming in, competitive offers, and they were willing to pay me points on my book, which some of these offers were at the time, I was like, oh my God, I'm very happy here, but this is like life-changing wealth. I mean, in hindsight, right. it seems weird right. to say that, but you know, it was. So I was like, started talking to people and then all of a sudden I had the opportunity to interview with Hansman and Crichton, which is where we all met. And when I sat down with them, they said like, you know, tell me about this book of business we're hearing about. And in hindsight, it was like about four or $500,000, which that for time, a young attorney, yeah. yeah that's it was, good. So the other firms I was interviewing with were all excited about this and they were like, what kind of hourly rate are you getting? And I said, I'm getting 175 an hour. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure I can get it up to 200. I said so proudly. And, you know, as every other friend I was talking to was all excited about that. And then I remember one of the two, Michael, said, yeah, well, how do you feel about getting rid of it? <laughs> and I was like thunderstruck. I, I didn't right. understand the question. The way I heard the story was, how quickly can you get rid of it? <laughs> <laughs> and then I was, I was actually not, sitting there. You disclose that you had that kind of you work. Know, dumbfounded. And then he was like, listen, love you to have you work at the firm, but we just can't have you working on stuff like that. It's just going to get in the way of us making money. Then I was like, that's like, where I want to go to work. Scott and Jeff were already there. Yep. When I was you, the first to join the firm, then Scott and David. I boil it down to one thing. The owners, Michael and Michael, are not that much older than we are. Uh -huh. They were phenomenally successful. I learned a tremendous amount from them. I have great respect for them, but it was ultimately, do I want to have a job or do I want to build something of my own? Right. And it came down to the ability to generate work. If you can't bring in business and all your referral network dries up, and Michael Hansen, we knew he was going to go on the bench one day, mm -hmm. so if something was going to seismically happen and change in the firm, We'd be left in our 40s with no work of our own. Right. And that was daunting. We've always talked about how it's valuable to be a good lawyer. It is much more valuable to generate work. And if you had to pick between the two and you look at who gets compensated in our world, the people who generate are the ones who get compensated. And it's ideally you have both. And I think in our situation, all three of us have both. But if you can't be a generator, you'll never be an earner. But unless you have a single captive client because your brother-in-law is the right. GC of whatever, you know, ex-client, you kind of have to be a good lawyer before you can generate business. Sometimes. I think in large part, there's always an exception. There's always an exception. But yeah. in large part. I largely agree with that, but understand that where we were, the firm was just so profitable. Sure, right. It was most valuable for them to have us just, just do, do work. their right. work. Well, they needed and people I, to do their work, right? And they I, had so much. Yeah, and I think that a lot of firms adopt that model. I mean, I was told, yeah. you know, I've said this dozens of times, I was told throughout the beginning of my practice, focus on becoming a good lawyer and bill hours and don't worry about business generation until I was up for partner and then they asked me, what does your book right. of business look right. like? And I said, what are you talking about? There's arguably yeah. a bit of myopic view to take, right? As the owner of a firm, you sure. asked, what do we do differently in our firm? Yeah. One, we have a deal with every lawyer who works for us. They get a guaranteed percentage of anything they generate. Does the work they generate mean the highest and best use of their time with respect to money that goes into our pockets? Generally, no. But we take a more holistic approach of building something, mm -hmm. not just maximizing our own personal profits and leaving nothing behind us. We want to build a firm. We want to help people build their careers, whether they choose to stay with us or leave from a holistic standpoint, from a human standpoint of making people feel good about being where they are while they're with us and helping them build their careers. So they're incentivized to go generate work because they get a guaranteed piece, and we foster that. You want to take people out to lunches, dinners, go to seminars, what have you, 
it's on us. Whatever support you need from us to do it, right. we're not going to tell you what charity to take part in, what board to join, but know you have our support, but find your thing, find your space that works for you, and we'll support it. And that's in our DNA, because when we started our firm, we didn't have any work. I mean, this was a purely, if you build it, they will come outlook for us. No one took a case. No one had a brother-in-law. We just sort of figured, well, we'll open up a little firm and people will call us and then we'll start doing some work and we'll see what happens. And if it doesn't work out, we can always get a job. Yeah, if you remember when we were leaving and they learned we were leaving, they said, okay, what cases are you taking and which people are you taking? We said, none and no one. We didn't raid their firm. We didn't make any effort to take cases. It just wasn't who we were. We were like, we're going to do it the right way. We're going to build something on our own, but we're not stealing work. We're not stealing their people. Mm -hmm. We're just going to hopefully make this work. And once the Michaels came to appreciate that was our approach, it paved the way for a a very smooth transition and has enabled us to maintain lifelong friendships with them. When we left and and they asked those questions that Jeff Mm -hmm. just went over, I think they were almost a little surprised. And then, you know, our message to them was, listen, we're not trying to hurt you. We're just trying to be you. And you've made clear, yeah. for reasons that are totally acceptable and legitimate to us, that can't happen here. So this is the only path forward for us. And, you know, however much leave you want, we will leave this house in pristine order. We just want the opportunity to control our own fate and to have made the career for yourselves. That's what we want for ourselves. Yeah, we don't so, burn any bridges. We still co-counseled with them. Right. We've got referrals from them. We've really had a good working relationship as well as personal relationship with them ever since. Well, kudos to you guys for your approach, but... Kudos to the Michaels, Hansman and Crichton, for their approach as well. Because having done the same thing you guys did, I was on my own, I went out, but I just left. I think I had three small cases that I took, did it the right way, sent letters to the clients, like you guys decide, didn't have anything in the hopper, didn't have a cousin or nothing, and tried to do it the right way, but didn't have the same result, David, that you referenced because the people on the other side didn't have the same approach as the Michaels. There's an ego component, right? A uh, massive. The owner of the firm, how dare you leave me and us? Yes. You realize what you're leaving behind? And you have Correct. to put that aside. In fact, one of our lawyers, somebody who worked with me in my cases for 11 years, mm-hmm. traveled the country with me after depots, mediations, mm-hmm. trials. When he left, he called me and said, yeah, I'm leaving. Talk to me about it. He was a good friend to this day. I said, that's awesome. I understand why you're doing it. I applaud that you're doing it. Mm -hmm. I agree. It's the right time for you to do it. And to this day, he stayed in the same office. He still shares a wall with me. Yeah. We're co-counsel on two, three hundred cases together. Yeah. Because it's not about ego. It's you're doing what's right for you and your family. And doing it the right way. Yeah, the right way. Right? And the right approach. The reality is it works for both parties because we started our firm with something to do. And they didn't lose the three human beings who'd been in the middle of the cases that were ongoing and just have that institutional knowledge of operate. So even if you set aside you know, all the warm-heartedness, it is the rational way to leave a firm. You don't want to leave a little law firm with a litigation behind you. you nope. know, and they don't want to lose people who are the only ones who know what's happening in the Jones file. Now, there is money to be made by people doing it what we view the wrong way. Absolutely. Right? Packing up files, taking them in the dark night, improperly contacting those clients, hey, I'm leaving, come with me. And then litigation ensues, but the fees to be generated by those cases 
regardless of what the ultimate split is, right. the people will depart, still make a lot of money, but we don't think it's the right way to But do I that. would say in the short term, they might short term, do better. Right. But yeah. in the long term, yeah. they're not going to do better. Well, I wasn't well, justifying right, it. Right. It gets done that way. Agree. Oh, it gets done all the time, I'm right? Gonna say, I'm going to take issue with this. I don't believe in that long-term karma. I think there's an ethical way to practice law and right. an unethical way to practice law. Sure. And I will guarantee you the unethical folks who are smart and good at it will make a lot of money in the long term and they'll keep doing it. Yep. And we have plenty of examples of folks that we don't deal with anymore because we just don't think they're ethical. They're not starving. They're not living under a bridge. They're doing just fine. And we see time and again when we get presented with an ethical issue yep. and we say, okay, we can do it the right way or the wrong way. The wrong way is going to make us extra hundred grand. What are we going to do? And we always do it the right way, but there's a cost and that cost is persistent. And the folks yeah. who decide not to pay that cost are going to be rewarded for it. I mean, don't get yourself. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not, not so yeah. sure. And you're saying, yeah, they're being rewarded for it, but well, just it's kind of like I get it. But for how long? For how long? Exactly. Because of their careers. Yeah. Remember, Some, it's a moral compass issue. If your moral compass isn't straight, so that you don't lose sleep at night over doing this, you profit from it, you don't give a shit who you leave in your wake and what damage you cause, right. your reputation, what have you. Right. You know, if you want to get too deep, I mean, there's instances where people who are starving, not just in the practice of law, but elsewhere around the globe, right? right. They have to make compromises that, right. to provide, to take care of necessities, food and shelter. But we're so lucky, right? We're so blessed. You know, we can do things perfectly straight, never have to compromise our integrity, never have to compromise our values, and no one needs to hold a charity fundraiser for us, right? right. So the notion that you can make more money by doing things that are unethical, but keeps you up at night and forces you to compromise your integrity, makes you think if your mom or dad knew about it, you'd be embarrassed right. and ashamed and feel like, you know, you mm -hmm. would fail them in that way. So, and again, all of our differences, we disagree all the time on all things, but on fundamental things like this, perfectly aligned. Yeah. Yeah. About priorities. So, if your priorities are things, how many cars can I collect? How many homes can I purchase? How many nice watches can I wear? If that's your driving factor and your moral compass is otherwise off kilter, this whole discussion is meaningless. True. Right? True. But when you realize there's things far greater than how many watches I have, do I feel good about myself? Am I happy every day? Do I wake up? Do I get to kiss my kid? Give tuck me, them kiss, in at night. Them, tuck right. them in at night. Yeah. Not call them from the prison cell. You know, that's important to me. You know, not calling from the prison cell. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? So how did you guys know? Because how long had you worked together before you formed the firm? The three of us for three years. Oh, Jeff it was three been years. Six years. Scott, okay, four so years. Me, three years. It was some time. Yeah, we spent a lot of time together. We were in the office. You guys were in the trenches. I mean, I mean together. Before the other guys showed day. up. After they left, we went 8 a.m. to 7 or 8 p.m. every Saturday for years running. I think I worked like five or six Christmases in a row. Not bragging about it, but right. we were together a lot. So you knew each other's, not only the moral compass, but also the work ethic. Because yeah. I do think that's part of it. Is, you, know, you could partner with someone who has the same moral compass, but they're lazy or they don't want to put in the sweat. And yeah, it's not sure. going to work. And, and that's quality, one thing that's not an issue. The, the quality level. I mean, the shop we came right. from was a very high-quality litigation boutique. We were in federal court. We were fighting at big firms nationwide, mm -hmm. big stuff all the time. And the one thing we knew about each other is we knew that we could do anything in the law. We knew that we had the talent and the skill and the drive and the hard work and the ethics. But, you know, you, you can't partner up with a lawyer you deem half the lawyer you are. And that also wouldn't work. So there's some stability. When you talk about the stability of that platform, having respect for one another's skill set is another leg of that stool. Yeah, I mean, I think the respect has to be there, the trust and the same moral compass. I mean, I think I agree with yeah. all of that. And to your point, Scott, about sitting together and talking through issues, I mean, when you're, someone may have more generation than the other partner or whatever, it doesn't matter if you know that your partner or partners are 
working or working toward it or putting forth the effort or trying and they've had it, you know, I mean, it's going to come and go. It's just a matter of everyone is moving in the same direction. We have always looked at that as, you know, we do a lot of contingency work and you all know about there's contingency cases that can change your lives. There's ones that'll make a good year and the ones will make a good decade and ones will make you forever. And I look at this group and I say, the case that can make our lives forever Mm -hmm. come from anyone. I couldn't even guess which of the three of us generates that case or which of the three of us generates that outcome. Right. It's as likely as any one of us to do it as any other. The point you made earlier about something we do differently, and Jeff was talking about how we encourage our young people to, Mm -hmm. you know, originate. And I want to dig a little deeper on that because I think some people hear that and think that's generous on our part. And that's a fair point to make. I won't disagree with that, but it's also an almost a selfish investment on our part because having been in a place where that wasn't encouraged. And now when we encourage our people to generate, and a lot of instances, we've all heard stories of people who work for firms where, you know, it's generation is always the senior partner's generation. No matter who gets the phone call, no matter, you know, until you leave and take the client with you, right? It's someone else's generation. So at our firm, if there's like a second iteration of a case and someone's working with Scott and answering the phone all the time and the client calls them with the second case, a lot of times we'll give them that generation. And that's purposeful because- when you are a tactician working for someone else, all you get good at is being a tactician, being a lawyer. But when you have a client and when you have to manage billing, client expectations, mm-hmm. financial aspects of the case, unfulfilled expectations, delivering bad to, news. Right, delivering bad news. Mm-hmm. It makes those people different and better lawyers, which ultimately improves the whole house. Yeah, I mean, you want your people to take ownership. And so you're giving them the incentive to do that and rewarding it, that behavior when they do it successfully, it's right? Beneficial. Essentially, they right. Grow, they get well, better and, and you're essentially avoiding what you guys left. And we talk about this all the time, Brett and I, that our future, our exit plan from this firm is you see them down the hall. They're here. They're internal. We're not selling this law firm to somebody else. We want our people to take over. And you have to make them a part of that. If you don't, then they don't have a choice but to leave. And so we've been working on that in the beginning. Brett and I, our time was responsible for 90% of the revenue of the firm. And we worked hard to shift that so that there were other people billing time. And we still are responsible for the majority of the business generation, but we're working to shift that. We're trying to promote others and help them and help them build a name so that we want the value of the firm to not be Bast and Amron to be a law firm that you can come to for any lawyer, not just us. And so you have to be conscious about it and you have to take steps to prop your people up. Yeah, it takes effort. You're focused on your work daily. You don't carve out the time for those bigger picture issues. It doesn't happen. Yeah, You need to make it a priority and at least one of your priorities if you want it to happen. And I think, David, the point you raised about it, the perception is that that's generous, right? Wanting to foster an environment where people go out and get business generation and give them credit for that is generous. I think in some circles it is considered generous because of just the nature of the practice of law and management of law firms in general over decades, you know, or hundreds of whatever it is. And I think it is different the way you guys operate your firm and the way that we operate the firm, which is very similar, I think it's different. And so I think people, the perception is that it is generous, but it and depends. It may be, but the greater value is when that Agreed. talent transforms into a full-grown lion. Agreed. You handle every aspect of the case, go out, bring it in, yeah. develop the relationship, handle the case. And then manage. Right. Yes. And, and then and run the firm. And you know he's serious about it because David loves lions. 
<laughs> Only second to Griffins. Griffins are at the top, but Lions are a close second. All right. So I will say that to finish off that one point, yeah. you know, a lot of folks look at the money that comes in every year as a zero-sum game, and if I give some to somebody else, it's something I'm not taking home. And that's true of salary, that's true of entertaining budget, sure. that's true of overhead and how nice your office is. But the goal of us has always been, aside from being a happy, healthy place, is to grow the pie. And the only way to grow the pie is to have, as David says, turn those people into generators. And then if they're generating so much they can't do it, you hire someone else. And that is an organic growth that is hard to beat in terms of not only success, but again, that long-term stability. If anything, I view our firm as a lesson in stability because one way or another, when you say what you will about us, we're still here. You know, we've been doing the same fucking thing for 20 years. It speaks for itself. That stability. sounds so miserable. (laughs) (laughs) And there is some misery to it. Of course, we're lawyers. (laughs) But the reality is we are still in the same place because it is working and, you know, it ain't broke. And we here at Past Amron are trying to get to your level, right? We always talk about it. We're the little team. But we're only 15. We're the little brothers. There's an on-air button. I can't believe what you got. We're the younger brother. We are. We're the younger brother. You guys are 20. We're 15. Well, if you're any other guests have said it, though, by the way, the space here is just spectacular. Thank you. Thank you. You are missing, though, a key. We have a tequila bar, and you don't? Yeah. You do not have that. We don't have a tequila bar. So maybe 2024. Speaking of tequila bars, I want to know when have you guys failed? And I don't mean that you lost a case or something. When have you screwed up, and what have you learned from those mistakes? Yeah, I think the happy answer to that is definitional, right? What's failure? Experience and experience that you learn from. Well, a ton, right? But the point is, I think that every time something has not gone well, Mm -hmm. we have learned something and have applied it going forward, Mm -hmm. right? Right. And you know the saying, you know, life's not so much what happens, it's, you know, how you respond to what happens. And in that regard, I think our failures are very, very few Mm -hmm. because to the extent things haven't worked out financially, I'm very proud of the way we have responded. So... The Sinatra song, Regrets, yeah, a few. I wish some outcomes would have been differently. But, you know, in terms of failures, I don't view it that way. In fact, I'm kind of stumped. I don't wow. know what to tell you. He's an eternal optimist, by the way. Yeah. He's, he really well, see the bright side. Go ahead. Well, right. That's why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Scott and Jeff are going to now tell us. <laughs> I will say institutionally, yeah. one failure, I think, we had a fear of risk initially, and that's coming from contingency fee lawyers as well. Sure. We do a lot of billable work. Early on in our firm's history was one of the greatest bull markets, I'll say, in the securities world, securities arbitration world. Wall Street had just ravaged middle America and crushed Main Street. And there were so many cases to be had. And at the time, it was the infancy of the internet. Very few lawyers in the securities arena were publicly marketing. And we didn't want to spend the money to do it. And we were fearful of what marketing would do to our reputation as lawyers in front of judges. Mm. Whereas other lawyers, not just locally, but nationwide, there's a pretty tight bar association who we consider to be less than half the lawyers we are, are spending money marketing. And I don't want to get into solely about finances, right. but ultimately they right. crushed it solely because they were willing to take the risk, yeah. spend the money, risk their reputation, and frankly, He's like, what well, reputation? I'll be on my boat. I don't give a shit when it right, yeah. me. When I'm on my boat and you're writing a brief, they got the cases right. and the fear of the risk, the fear of spending the money. What if it doesn't work out? Because that's a reality. Not all marketing campaigns work. Sure. And there's a conflict between David and Scott who do a lot of commercial work. And while we don't have many institutional corporate clients, a lot of their clients are big corporate entities. 
And there is a disdain a lot of times for plaintiff lawyers. So does the marketing of the plaintiff's practice detract from and even hurt the reputation of the commercial side? That was a risk. We had to decide, are we willing to take that risk? Mm-hmm. That was a failure in, in my mind early on that we weren't willing to take that risk. We think we've more than made up for it. Right. But from okay. a business standpoint, that's, that's what I see. And there is a risk to success. You know, when you usually win and you're well-known, do you take the next risk and the next motion and the next case? Do you file something where it's a total toss-up as opposed to one you are damn sure you're going to win? As you get older, as you get more senior, as you get more established, as you view yourself as having a reputation, it becomes harder and harder to take what may be a perfectly reasonable risk. Then that fear of failure becomes limiting to, as you view yourself as more and more successful, you are more and more limited by the fear of failing in anything. And so I find that litigating. I don't want to lose a fucking motion. I don't want to lose anything. Right. And you got to tell yourself sometimes, you know, you can't win every battle before you fight it, notwithstanding what Sun Tzu tells you. So sometimes you've got to remind yourself, you know, even as at lofty ages as we are, mm-hmm. and I won't start naming ages because some of us are older than others, but you have to remind yourself it's okay to lose some shit. Well, sometimes it's a strategic loss too, right? In litigation, you may file a motion for a specific reason, not really intending to no, win that, the motion, that, right? But I know what you're saying, and, well, and I agree with this. You know, you're going to lose on limitations grounds, but it tells the judge when we're back here on summary judgment. Remember, right. I told you about how old this case is. Exactly. No, I got that part. Yeah. I mean, here's an interesting point to like, I don't see it the way Scott does on that, right? On all the fundamentally important stuff, we're right. aligned. But like, I mean, I hate losing, right? I'm a competitor just like everyone in this room. But for me, it's about process, right? If I bring my best effort to the table, if I prepare, mm-hmm. if I do the right thing and it doesn't work out, I'll live with the outcome. Yeah, that's yeah, how I feel. Outcome. Anyone can win the winnable case. If, if, if you're right, anyone can do uh, that. If, but if, if you're wrong and you can win, win I'm okay. I like yeah. a hard case. Yeah, you know? because the hard cases are the ones that you're going to keep getting. There are tens of thousands of lawyers in Miami-Dade County alone. And we always tell the people here, what sets us apart? We take the harder case, the more difficult case. And sometimes you may not get the ultimate outcome, but we're going to get an outcome. And we're right. going to get an outcome. But you know, that the other thing, okay I mean, yeah. you cannot control outcomes, right? We no. all have cases so, that yeah. we won, we should have lost. Right. We've had cases that we lost, which should bother us until our dying days. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, There's yeah, no yeah, doubt sure. about that. So you can't control the outcomes with the vagaries of the way judges are elected or appointed or, right. or, or juries even. You right. can control right. this process, right? If you handle that the right way, you know, if you give it your best effort as you prepare mm-hmm. and you use sound judgment and, you know, you abide by your moral compass. Even then, you're still going to go yeah. through the woulda, coulda, shoulda, yeah. I could have yeah. done this. Could I have done. Control case selection. Because in the plaintiff world, you make money on the case you don't make sometimes. Yeah. Obviously, right. with contingency, right. contingency yeah. fee arrangements, you know, color yeah. that conversation. Well, we, we do different contingency. We do contingency work as well. And there's definitely calculated risk. I always tell clients, sure. beware of outcomes. Because there's a lot of opportunities for cases to end right. before there's an outcome. Right. And if there's going to be an outcome, I can't control it. I can control yeah. right. getting at the off-ramp at a happy place before the outcome. And that's not to say sometimes you got to try the case and you got to win it or lose it. But that is to be concerned about outcomes because you can't, as you say, predict them. And to David's point, process, that is one of the things that we as a firm culture believe in. I can't file a motion for a large bit of time that I haven't looked at closely to make sure it looks good. I mean, nothing. Our no. quality level is as high as we can make it. We came from a place where they had a high quality level. We came from places before that that had high quality levels. Yeah. So that's why we've always maintained our shop. That will not guarantee an outcome. No. You could be the best lawyer in the room and lose. <clears throat> it happens. That's why, you know, you got to be aware of that. And you can't always control it. But if you're giving good advice to clients who are always gung-ho about this or that or confident about this and that, 
my daddy's been doing this longer than me. He says a slam dunk in the law is something that has a 70% chance of happening. Everyone in this office knows that if it appears to be a slam dunk, I'm freaking out. Yeah. I bring in the red team and I say, okay, tell me how we lose this. I want to hear from everybody. You tell me how we lose this because... I don't see missing? it. What are we missing? Yeah, what are our blind spots? How do we lose this? Yeah, and what are we missing is the one question I asked every mediator during every mediation. Correct. What am I missing? Right. And it usually answers nothing, but it doesn't matter because to your point, the decider may be the one missing it. Right? Fair. <laughs> well, the person deciding your case oftentimes will decide it based on something that neither side thought was oh, particularly meaningful. That's 100%. true. Yeah. 100%. Certainly with juries. But you also have to understand the perspective. And this came to me later in my career you could keep beating your head against the wall on the law and the facts, but you don't know what's going on on the other side. Yep. So as I've aged as a litigator or just as a lawyer, right? And this happens as a parent too. You have to understand the other side's perspective, right? And try to figure that out too and how to get what you're looking for out of yeah. the other side. That comes with maturity, experience, right. and willingness and ability to think outside the box as right. well. David is a prime example without going into the fact he's got a current litigation matter going on. Mm-hmm. And there's some interesting things that came out publicly. It's a very high-profile case. Mm-hmm. And there's some very high-level lawyers, big national law firms involved in the case as well on both sides of the V. Right. And people on our side were wondering, why is X fact pattern happening? We don't understand what would be the motivation for one of these co-parties of ours. What is their motivation for doing what they're doing? Right. And David thought outside the box of what is the litigation strategy and what is the legal issue in front of us and come up with a very rational, reasonable viewpoint of here's what may be going on at the corporate level as to why they may be doing this mm-hmm. from a business perspective. Right. And these lawyers at very prominent national firms yeah. responded, wow, that's really bright and insightful. It's a very practical, reasonable approach you took, but it requires your willingness and ability to think outside the box, not just be confined to the four corners of the complaint, for example, or the case law that governs the complaint. Yeah. Because a lot of bigger, as lawyers... We all think the world revolves around the stuff we're working on. Well, it's a hell of a lot bigger than the cases we're working on. There's a lot of outside factors, personal factors. Is someone sick or dying? Is there a family member that's ill? Is there a business function that if this litigation goes the wrong way, it harms some other aspect of the business? A lot of things go into these cases that we as lawyers may not think of if you're only thinking about the very structure of the case itself. We wear two hats, right? We are advocates. When you're going into court and the tactical decisions you make and the motions you choose to file and the way you choose to argue something, that's your role as an advocate. But perhaps the more important role is as a counselor, which is, should you want to go forward with this case or not? Should you settle this case? It's a much more global perspective with regard to what's good for your client. And the client may not agree with you, but part of the job is to lay it out the way you see it, That's right. then let grown-ups make well, a decision. It's a delicate dance, too, because your clients read your filings, which are advocacy pieces. Right. Yeah. You have sold them. <laughs> How could we possibly yeah. lose? Right, yeah. And when you counsel them. Yeah. Uh, I don't understand. You just filed this document. The more successful you are, the less they believe you. We have a case that we've had for a couple of years now that when it started, we said, all right, we could probably buy you a couple of months with this thing. And every time we were telling them, okay, this is the time we're going to lose at this hearing. And then we'd win and we kept winning. And, you know, to our credit, but also our client never, ever believed that we were going to lose. And he still, <laughs> to this day, doesn't believe and he we're going to lose. Right. He may be right, but <laughs> we, we should have lost. And then inevitably, when it goes wrong, he's going to be like, why guys didn't you tell exactly. me to get out of here? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Oh, the 700 emails that I have. We, we had a recent <laughs> securities right. contingency case where at the outset, the client really only wanted to know how much 
he's going to win in punitive damages. <laughs> forget liability, money. forget damage. I so want punies. I called right. and I said, look, I think it's important you come into the office. We have a sit down. I want to make sure your expectations are realistic. He comes in, we sit down. He looks across the table from me, looks at me and says, you think my expectations aren't high enough? Said, no, 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 no. What you're talking about in terms of that counseling element is exactly what we were talking about earlier, about how easy it is as an unethical lawyer to make a ton of money. Because I talk oh, clients yeah. out of filing cases all the time. Mm -hmm. I say all the time on a defense side, I can't win this case for less than it's going to cost you to settle it. And on the flip side, if someone says, I want to sue this guy over, it's $200,000. I say, I cannot economically win your case right. for $200,000. So we are forever talking clients out of paying yeah. us money. Even if I can win it, you're not going to be happy right. at the end. Right. And then That's you're the thing. The client says it's uh, principle. It's principle. Oh, and then you double your retainer. My line yeah. is, I said, it may be. Right? And here's how I define that. I say, okay, let's suppose I tell you this is a big case, right? And it's going to cost you no less than a million dollars to get to trial. If you're okay with that, knowing that you may lose, think of it like this. If you're okay taking a million dollars out of your pocket right now, putting it on the table and lighting it on fire and watching it burn is going to bring pleasure to you knowing that the smoke is causing the other guy the slightest bit of discomfort, then you can afford to litigate on principle. <laughs> but if watching your money go up in smoke is going to give you the least bit of agita, no, then peel back, treat it, as a cold, bloodless, neutral, analytical analysis, and the lawsuit makes financial sense, or it does not, or it makes sense for some other reason, separate and apart from principle. I, I think you went too far in talking them out of it. If they want to spend a million dollars, let the yeah, guy spend a million dollars. Come on, come on, You went too far. Right. 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 I had a client once, he had actually, in the past, is an older guy, very successful businessman, had been represented by my dad on something else. And something comes up over the course of this litigation. It says, as a matter of principle, I'm like, oh, you know, it's start talking about principle. He laughs. He says, I remember the first time I litigated with your father. He said, here's the situation, and I'm doing this, telling me it's too expensive. But I said, it's a matter of principle. Your dad just laughed, and he said, I love clients with principles. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you talk about lawyers that unscrupulous, right, even in the initial client intake. We talk about it all the time. There may be some matters where, you know, we get the call where we have to make a pitch in bankruptcy. You know, you got to make a pitch or for a contingency case. And we don't get it. And someone else gets it. And we look and we're like, how could they get it over us? Well, what are they saying? What are they telling the client or not telling the client? Right. Yeah. Jeff gets I this all the time. And that, that's okay. So like, so that happens. I will tell you, my partner does something that I could never do, which is he'll get the turn down email or call. Mm -hmm. And Jeff, of course, being Jeff, will pick up the phone and call the guy and say, listen, you know, can you tell us why it is that yeah. we didn't I get it? I, yeah, it's good. We've done that. Yeah, we've done and that. For sure. The lies I have learned. Yeah. A lot of times we are chasing, you know, there's a securities product on Wall Street that goes bad. Mm -hmm. And we're often among one of the five or 10 firms in the country who are likely going to be hired for the cases. And we all vie for position to get as many of the cases as we can. And when I haven't gotten cases, I've heard, well, because you said the case is only worth $5 million. And they told me it's worth $10 million. I said, but you only lost $5 million. <laughs> you didn't lose $10 million. Well, they told me I did. I said, but you never had $10 million. <laughs> but so many lawyers will overstate the strength yeah. or value yeah. or both of a case in order right. to get us hired. Yeah. And I tell them, six, nine, 12 months later, you're going to be in a mediation. And I'm telling you, your lawyer is going to tell you why you should be taking X amount less right. because now it's going to be too late to really change at that point. But that's going to happen. We had a lawyer who had an office on Wall Street. I wanted a lawyer in New York. 
It was a friend of mine who lives in Coral Springs. He has a mailbox address on Wall Street uh-huh. in New York. And now so do we. <laughs> We're taking down an address in New York City. But right. Yeah, the lies they get told. Sure. And it's lies about their ability, right. too, and what they right. can and the, deliver. And it's forget the, the dollar amount. Fault. It's not the client's no. fault. No. You know, how do they know? They don't right. know. They were I mean, sometimes it's obvious, of, but. They were already hoodwinked right. by the financial yeah. advisor of the right company. Now. And they fall prey to the same thing because they haven't learned their lesson. Right. Or they're told, we'd like to call balls and strikes even in the initial meeting. Here are the things that are great about your case. Mm-hmm. Here's what could go badly in your case. Yeah. A lot of lawyers will sugarcoat and won't talk about the right. bad. Is, they were yeah. more confident in my case. They believed in right. my case right. more. Right. right. I've it heard is that. It's beyond thing. easy to bullshit a client. If that's what you want to practice, you just want to get the case in, tell, tell them whatever it takes to get the good contingency case. Or if it's a billable case, yeah, yeah, we're going to get these guys and absolutely, and you wind them all up. And you make the 100 or 200 before you tell them, yeah, you know, yeah this it's is, time you know, to settle. They're yeah. not going to put the bad press. They're going to come right to the table. Clients almost always say, you send a demand letter. They're never going to want this bad press. Right? Really, they're worried about your million-dollar loss. This is a multi-billion-dollar entity that just paid a billion-dollar fine to the U.S. government last week. They're not worried about your case. Right. Other lawyers will tell them, oh, yeah, we'll send a demand letter. They won't want this press. They're going to pay you right away. But we've got to yeah. be honest well, guys, this is now officially our the longest. longest. I told you, it's either going to be the shortest ever. or the longest. Yeah, I broke the record. That was <laughs> I'll tell you, we have conversed with these gentlemen many times, mm-hmm. and it's usually more fun. I gotta say, there's usually, so there's like, usually tequila or scotch. We're gonna have involved. to have you guys back for another. Actually, yeah. I can't believe how well behaved. <laughs> yeah, I'm must, a little disappointed. Too well behaved. This was fun. We definitely want to bring you guys back. Maybe we'll bring them back one at a time. Guys, kudos to you. This was super cool. <laughs> see how they the, just the fact that you're doing this is super yeah. cool. We're yeah. looking here more about that backstory at some other time. We do it because we enjoy it. Yeah. We have fun. And if you're a listener and you listen to this episode and you enjoyed it, then a great way to let us know is That's to give a us segue, a five-star review. That was good. Right give us a five-star review. Share the show. Send this episode to some of your friends and tell them to check out the practice. And we will see you next time. Thanks, Nelson. Guys. Very cool. Thank Thanks, you. Guys. Thanks, Thank Nelson. You Pleasure. Jeff. It's always my pleasure. For more information on this show and other resources, visit FastAmron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at FastAmron.com.